everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Stephen Perkins podcast. I'm Stephen Perkins. This is my podcast. You're listening to it. And we're de- we're all having fun is what's happening. We're having a great time. I Let me tell you, have you ever had a moment where things did not go according to plan? I know that uh, it, it is it has happened to me all the time and it probably happens to you all the time. Well, this week's episode is kind of like that. Uh, my guest this week, uh, I had planned on speaking to him for about mm, 30, 35 minutes. Let me tell you, friends, as you can already see if you're looking down at your podcast player, this did not go according to plan. We ended up talking for about an hour, but here's the fun fact about it. I did not regret any minute of it because this is a really uh, a really great episode, probably one of my favorite, if I do say so myself. I was just on point, and my guest was great too. His name is Zach Slayback, uh, and he is an author, entrepreneur. He works in education, professional development. Basically, if you want to be inspired to kick off like this awesome, incredible, purpose-filled life, this is the episode for you. Uh, he's also the chief mindset officer at The Mission, which is one of the largest uh, publications on Medium, which if you don't know what Medium is, where have you been? It's a great blogging platform, and uh, and Zach helps run the show over at The Mission. And so on this episode, I just want you to sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired because I know that I am. I have, you should see my notes page. It is just full of chicken scratch that I honestly can't read. I can't read any of it. So here's my interview with Zach Slayback. Zach, thanks so much for coming on my show. How are you today? Steven, I'm happy to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, this is an exciting one because usually on the show I interview uh, political activists. Um, mm-hmm. And every once in a while we get into people in media or people in business and uh, in education, the fields that you're in. Um, and so I'm excited to talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing. Um, just I think anyone who takes a brief look at uh, your Twitter, your website, or, or any of that uh, sees that you're in a diverse um, set of things that you're involved with. Right. Um, and so I, I think this will be cool to break down everything that, that you advocate for. Hey, and, and my background, too, comes from political activism of one kind or another, you know, so I, I'm well acquainted with that space. And I'd say I, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. Sure. <laughs> but, I get that. Uh, it's definitely a space that I, I'm with which I am well acquainted. Yeah. One of the things we like to do on the show is we like to start way back uh, from when you were a child. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Child Zach and uh, and how that uh, how that childhood was. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I try not to get too caught up in, you know, introspection and reflection on like, oh, how how has how I grew up influenced the way that I think about the world today or the problems I, I deal with today, but Sometimes I do, and I'm like, wow, there's actually a lot of connection here. Um, quite recently, I had uh, breakfast with uh, a teacher of mine who I had for something like eight or nine years while I was growing up. She was one of the, you know, those quote-unquote gifted education teachers. Uh, and you know, she's actually one of the two people, both of whom are teachers, that my, my first book, The End of School, is uh, to whom it's dedicated. And, uh, you know, I was, I was talking with her a little bit about it. I grew up in a, a rural town in, you know, coal country, Pennsylvania, uh, right, right on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And uh, it's actually been thrown into the news quite a bit recently with the uh, election of the recent president. And uh, it, it's the town, there was a coal mine that opened there just like a couple weeks after he was inaugurated. And that, that got a lot of attention, a bunch of other things related to that. So 
gives you an idea of the socioeconomic background of the community. But uh, I was I was always someone who I, I always performed very well as a student, and I would thrive in the classroom environment. I thrived in school, but I hated it. Uh, and, and when I say I would, I don't mean like I was one of those people who I got terrible grades. And if I actually applied myself, I'd be good. I, I got good grades, right? I did very well in school all throughout. My goal was to get into a prestigious university, uh, ended up doing that. Uh, but it, the whole time it's like, <laughs> it, it, I, I, I said it with this teacher that I met with the other day, uh, you know, if it wasn't for certain opportunities in school to, be creative outlets and by creative outlets i mean to pursue the things in which i was actually interested the things i wanted to learn the things i wanted to uh create around then uh, i am i'm convinced that the school would have crushed me right and it was not necessarily like a bad school by any means i i i don't like to get into discussions of what is and is not a good or bad school because it's i'm sure your your listeners are familiar with something like this with politics it's like uh everyone Congress, for example, has an approval rating that's lower than that of syphilis, right? But somehow, everyone, if you talk to them about their congressman, it's like, well, yeah, Congress sucks, but my congressman is okay, sure, yeah. right? It's, it's like that with public schools as well. It's like, oh, yeah, schools need to be reformed, but where I send my kids, oh, it's a good school, or where I went to school, it's a good school. So I don't like to get too much into that, but always a you know, good student, someone very, very interested in ideas, very interested in how the world works. I remember I have this... I think I, I think it's since been destroyed, but I, I had this book growing up that was given to me by my parents. It was just called like uh, How Things Work, right? And I was very, very interested in that. I remember taking computers apart, putting them back together I, again, wanting to take bigger things apart. And somehow that led me to the study of like economics and philosophy, which I'm not entirely sure how I got there. Um, but I, the story I like to tell myself is uh, that economics is the study of human action, right? And that philosophy is the study of the systems, uh, the value systems that govern the world. So it's eventually abstracting up to, like, how do things work? Well, things work in a pretty straightforward way, right? How do people work and how people navigate the world, on the other hand, is a, is a much more interesting and uh, complex set of questions. So that idea of the kind of social sciences is always intriguing, right? I, yeah, yeah. I, I always like to – I, I kind of roll my eyes when someone says social sciences because it's like <laughs> – the word science is is a difficult word to well, apply sure. to them, right? Uh, but yeah, I was a political science major, and so I, I I know kind of the BS that can that can potentially surround that. Uh, but but speaking of your parents, what were they like, and and did it sounds like they encouraged that curiosity? Yeah, they were they were good about providing an environment uh, all through the ups and downs of of you know me growing up that allowed me. Um, structure structure as in like I wasn't starving on the street but freedom to be able to like pursue the things I want to pursue without uh, they, they were not by any means anything like you know tiger parents who like forced me to do really anything almost everything I chose to do uh, was something that I chose to do almost everything I did was something that I chose to do uh, you know they both it, it's interesting uh, they both worked in the airlines uh, my dad still works in the airlines uh, so my experience with, you know, needing to find a sense of self-efficacy uh, came like relatively early on. They were good when I was a child. I remember they were quite good about getting their schedules in such a way that, you know, one of them would be home like when I was a really young child at any given time. But 
it wasn't unusual for them to be gone for several days at a time. And so it's like some like some kids. I, I know some people who they grew up and they were like high achieving students and they have a very very low sense of self-efficacy, right? Because it's it's fairly closely attached to their conceptions of their relationship in their family with their parents or their relationship with their school. And I think that I, I was kind of forced relatively early on to like figure out how can I navigate the world necessarily without someone who is, you know, older and bigger than me around. Did you have siblings or, or are you an only child? No, I had a younger brother. Okay. And uh, did, did he kind of share that same, I, I guess, the, the, the same type of educational uh, passions that you had or was it different there? Uh, no, it, it was quite different. His his outlet for efficacy was usually something like, you know, school athletics. Gotcha. Yeah. That sounds like me and my siblings. My dad always uh, did not like the fact that I, I never did football. Uh, but <laughs> I, I told him I would have died if that would have happened. So thank goodness it didn't. Um, so that was your, your kind of educational background through public school. And then um, you mentioned college. What college did you end up going to? So I uh, initially went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, which uh, I am the furthest thing from like a credentialist elitist, um, but I always found it rather interesting. So I, like I said, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, and most of the people who go to UPenn uh, in Philadelphia, which is, you know, where the Wharton School of Business is, and it's it's like a prestigious private Ivy League university, um, it, a lot of those people are from the tri-state area, so they're from New Jersey, Philadelphia, and New York for the most part. And uh, I was not from either uh, any of those areas. So I, I, people would ask me, like, oh, are you going to go to college? And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Penn. They're like, oh, you're really like Joe Paterno, huh? I'm like, not, not the same thing. <laughs> I, I remember the, uh, the, the bookstore at the University of Pennsylvania used to sell. They don't have it anymore, I don't think. It used to sell a shirt that uh, had the Penn logo on it and it said above it, not Penn State. Um, <laughs> which I actually did own a own a one of those shirts at one point. Uh, yeah, so I, I went there, and the main reason I went there was they had a, they're one of the few universities in the United States that has a degree program, uh, a major, specifically in philosophy, politics, and economics, uh, which it was what I intended to major in, uh, and I, I learned very, very quickly uh, that uh, I, I really enjoyed the philosophy, the politics, which was just poli-sci classes I thought was really watered down uh, economics for the most part, and the economics uh, program outside of the business school at Penn was full of kids who couldn't get into the business school. So it had a we really weird dynamic to it that I didn't particularly appreciate. So it was a major uh, that that focused on all three of those subjects, philosophy, politics, and economics? It was a combined yeah, tour thing? Yeah, you would take, you know, you would take, it was essentially like a triple minor in those three. Okay. So you don't, you don't really get the opportunity to go really, really deep in it as well. That was one of the objections I heard from several people who had done the major. And they were like, eh, you know. If you're really interested in one of them, I recommend you actually go and study one of them. So I ended up um, on the philosophy track, and I ended up doing a research fellowship with a professor there, Adrian Martin. She's now at Claremont McKenna in California, uh, but I, I worked with her one summer to, to, to design a majors-only seminar. So and that was uh, in moral psychology, which is a subset of uh, normative uh, ethics. It's a subset of philosophy, uh, analytic philosophy in particular. Uh, so like uh, the way I, I describe the distinction between analytic and continental philosophy is if you've never really studied philosophy, your conception of philosophy is either probably old Greek, old dead Greek guys, or it's something like Nietzsche's God is dead, right? And the former is, is fine, I think. Like the old dead Greek guys are great and we need to study them more. 
Uh, but the latter is much more not what analytic philosophy is like. And analytic philosophy ends up looking a lot more like mathematics than anything else. Uh, so uh, moral psychology is a study of emotions, right? Like the normative study of emotions and emotional states and feelings that people have. So that uh, that was a really, really interesting subset uh, that I, I got interested in. And then after that year, I left the university. So I left after my sophomore year. So what was that uh, decision based on? Why'd you leave? Yeah, so I uh, I was working... Uh, I, I was doing really well in school, you know, I, I had this research fellowship, which was essentially, I got paid to read philosophy books and write uh, <laughs> write notes about them. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty great. Um, most of my, my colleagues in that program were like counting fruit flies, counting and sexing fruit flies, and I, and I got to, you know, like read philosophy articles. So I, I wasn't complaining about that, but I was I was bored out of my mind, and I uh, had a, a acquaintance, a friend from several years ago who was starting a company who I was in his focus group for the company, and I recall wanting to just go to him and say, like, hey, just give me some, I, I'd love to do, I love what you're doing, I'd love to help you a little bit with it, I'll do some work on the weekends, I'll do some work after classes, I'm losing my mind here, though, just jumping through these academic hoops to, for the sake of jumping through academic hoops. And I did that for a little bit, and then eventually, at the end of that year, uh, I decided I would actually do that full-time over the summer, and then take a leave of ab from the university, uh, which surprisingly my my advisor at the university encouraged me to do. He was like, "Hey, yeah, go to try it if if you love it and if it's uh, something that opens up a lot of doors for you and more doors than this would open for you, then go pursue that. Like you shouldn't you shouldn't say no to opportunities if they're going to be good opportunities for you, right? Hmm. Um, which that that has actually inspired a lot of my own thinking when I offer career advice to people. And then after a year of uh, working at that company, that was Praxis, um, which is a, a, a startup apprenticeship company. Uh, I remember looking over at the CEO one day and just looking at him and being like, "I don't think I'm going to go back. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm I'm learning more than I learned. Uh, I am earning more than I earned. Uh, I am happier and I'm producing more than I was producing. So I don't think I'm going to go back. So that's that's how that decision was made." I've always had this, um, well, let me start with this question. Was it always kind of expected by your parents that you would go to college? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I've had the same thought of, uh, same expectation for me. It was kind of the thing of, of just go do your four years, do your do your hard time, uh, and things will be better. And, and, and I, I did end up going through all four years, but I always wondered if I hadn't have done that or if I had left uh, earlier, um, you know, how differently things might've been. And, and maybe that's getting too far down into hypotheticals, but, um, I, I think a lot of people find themselves with that situation where their parents are from a generation that if, if we have the ability to get you to college, even if that means, uh, tons of student loan debt, uh, you should go because that's just the way that things are supposed to be. Do 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 it at any cost necessary, right? Exactly. Like it will pay off no matter what. And yeah, that and that's the typical baby boomer mindset, and that's the mindset that got us into like 2017 with um, massive economic and technological stagnation and 20 trillion dollars in debt, right? So I, I uh, in general, I don't like to take advice from those people, and I find the idea of taking advice from them uh, counterintuitive. Do you think we're in a college bubble that they talk about? Uh, 
Yes, uh, I, I think that the fact now in bubble is an interesting word and it depends on like how specifically you want to get into the definitions of it. But I think for sake of simplicity, I, it's the fact that we have something like one. Our, so our student loan debt in the United States today, there's a website, I think it's just called student debt or college, collegedebt.com. I, I'm pretty sure Mark Cuban owns it. And it's uh, if you've ever seen the U.S. national debt clock, it's that, but for student loans, right? And uh, last time I looked at it a few weeks ago, uh, the total student debt in the United States, which is about $1.56 trillion, I think, uh, is greater than the GDP of every country in the world except for the top 10 GDPs. Uh, to give you an idea, the country with the closest GDP to our total outstanding just student debt is Canada. And uh, there's actually more student debt in the United States than the GDP of Canada. So that's that's worrisome um, because you'd see that and you'd think, OK, well, there has to be like commensurate economic and technological progress to go along with that because that's not necessarily a bad thing right but at the same time we're also seeing for the first time since i think 2013 we've seen the first uh quarter in which there's been an uptick in student loan defaults uh and you just go and like talk to recent grads right a lot of them are competing for jobs that they probably could have gotten if they just went and worked for a year or two and didn't end up spending four years and uh, up to a quarter million dollars in, in debt, right? Yeah, I, I have a friend who did uh, um, a social sciences type of degree and was supposed to be able to then go on and um, and get lucrative positions from that. And now they're saying, no, you need an advanced degree. So essentially right. uh, ha- having all this debt graduating and the job now requires something else or uh, not able to do what what people originally thought they could do, and it's just so heartbreaking to think that we're leading people down this seemingly this promising path, but the other side, the grass isn't really greener necessarily. Right, and when people like to have discussions around this, you know, they they like to compare the statistic, which I haven't heard as much of in the last two to three years. It has been really interesting to me. I've been at this for about four or five years now to see how the uh, the dynamic around the college discussion has changed just in that time. It has drastically shifted towards my my direction, uh, and and I'm not of the camp that like nobody should go to college, but I th- I'm of the camp that it should not just be a given if you are a smart, competent young person that that's what you do. Uh, I, I think that y- it should be it should face that decision should face just as much scrutiny as any other decision that you would decide to take, right? So if you're a smart, competent young person today and you decide, hey, I've got this really cool job opportunity or maybe I've I've started this company and my company is starting to take off and you want to go pursue that rather than going and pursuing your degree, you will face so much scrutiny that you will feel like you are on trial for murder, right? Uh, I think that that culturally is a very, very dangerous dynamic to have because what you end up getting is you end up getting homogeneity of thought and you end up getting homogeneity of opportunities for people. And that's a very, very scary thing to have uh, in a world like the one that we live in today. But the thing you would, you'll see is that people will compare going to college and getting a, a, getting a like $70,000 job right out the door to working at McDonald's for four years and going home and sitting on your hands and eating Doritos, right? And that's a very unfair comparison. What you need to compare is you need to compare realistic scenarios for that individual in both cases, right? So it's it's not that necessarily going to college is going to make somebody smart and make them earn a lot of money. It's that in the past, 
smart, competent people went to college, and those people tend to earn money, but not because they went to college, because they are smart, competent people, right? Right. And and so what you talk a lot about is this idea of pursuing an alternative education. Is is that a fair term to put on it? I don't like that term okay. um, because there's there's a lot of things that get wrapped into that, right? And then I end up getting thrown in with like all the education reformists, which I, you know, it's it's funny. I recently gave a talk at a, a conference and. Uh, I, I like to think that I, I say things that are controversial uh, because it, it gets aroused out of people. People stay engaged and it works well. And uh, of all the things I said, the only things that resulted in me getting like any kind of nasty tweets back from anyone in the audience on Twitter uh, was I made fun of. And I realize I'm saying this uh, after <laughs> seeing uh, your your uh, Skype status. So it, it was in jest. It was in good spirit. I, I made fun of the Myers-Briggs type index. And uh, I also kind of made fun of school reform because I'm not a school reformist. I believe that people should just go create more options outside of school or outside of K through 12 or outside of higher education and that the system slowly crumbles apart through that. So you're saying expand the or expand the possibilities that people have for education um, and have those different opportunities available. Yeah, no, go out and, and build the path for your, yourself, for your children, for your family, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for your employees, for your investors, things like that. Uh, I was having a discussion recently with several uh, friends of mine, and uh, one of my friends is thinking about writing a, a book that's like a full-throated uh, a full-throated defense of, or um, I, almost an attack on these traditional tra uh, tract institutions, right? And he said, you know, do you really think that the world needs this? And I said, yes. And he's like, well, haven't you written something like that? And I'm like, yeah, I have. And like John Taylor Gatto has and a couple other people have. But what people are really looking for in any of these discussions, what it always comes back to is like, what would you replace it with? And it's it's an unsatisfying answer to tell someone's like, well, I would just let a thousand flowers bloom. I think that people who are going out there, and I think that is the right answer, but it's a very unsatisfying one for most people because they see so many options in, in front of them now that don't work. And they, they think a thousand flowers blooming is not going to work either. What people need to see is they need to see people who are going out there and creating these opportunities for themselves, right? And so would you say it's fair to say that uh, there have been an increase in these opportunities? I remember um, maybe eight years ago when I was uh, writing for a young entrepreneurship magazine, and that was really the, the time when um, incubators for young entrepreneurs, teen entrepreneurs started uh being developed in in the in the in Silicon Valley area, um, and it seems like that model has kind of exploded since then. So, have you seen that uh, increase, and in, in perhaps maybe not as as much of an increase as as you would want to see? But have you seen that? Uh, so, I've seen a couple things. Right uh, in the Silicon Valley models, we've seen a couple things pop up. Um, we've seen the rise and. To a certain extent, the fall of things like coding boot camps. Uh, a lot of people thought, like, oh, you know, just go spend three weeks in a coding boot camp and you'll become a software engineer. And it's as good as like spending four years and doing all those internships in between. It's like, eh, nah, that's probably not going to produce the same results in that small period of time, right? Now, there are a lot of those options out there, and I, I haven't actually sat down and done the empirical research to say whether or not those have actually fall, fallen as people are saying that they have. Uh, but you've seen a lot of coding boot camps as an example. One of the things that I have found very, very interesting that I noticed about – this was a shift that I started to notice about a year into uh, doing business with a lot of companies, right? So 
in one of the roles that I held when I was working with the Praxis team was that I had to go to companies and I had to convince them to hire someone who did not have a college degree, oftentimes someone who is only a high school graduate who might be like 17 or 18 years old. And they'd be competing with someone who might have a degree in that field coming from a local university. And only in about a year, one of the things I noticed was a shift from job descriptions saying, you know, BA required, right? To moving to either not listing the BA at all or saying something like, BA or equivalent work experience required. And that or equivalent work experience is a really, really interesting phrase, right? Because what is equivalent work experience to four years of higher higher schooling, right? right? And a lot of the hiring managers, especially a lot of the founders, hiring managers tend to be bureaucrats. So especially the founders, the presidents of the companies, the people who are actually on the board of the company with whom I spoke, I, I, I did not run into a single case where someone told me, Equivalent work experience is four years of work experience. They almost always would tell me, it's like, yeah, if you have one year of work experience in a, in a similar job to the one you're applying for, that's as good as, if not better than four years of, of the degree. No, I, so I, that's, I, I that's a big that, shift. Yeah, I didn't know that change was happening. That That's really cool. Um, so why why do you even do all of this? I'm, what is the mission that is guiding you to uh, to expose these additional opportunities for education and career advancement for people. I'm going to jump one level up. And if this gets like a little too abstract or a little too starry eyed, uh, we can bring it back down very quickly. Let's do it. I am convinced that there is a massive lack of meaning for people in the world today. And I think that a big uh, reason for this lack of meaning is uh, a consequence of the schooling institutions and the schooling systems uh, and I think that there, there's there's a lot of stuff that has led me to believe that, not just observation, but also research, uh, research into psychology, research into the history of school, research into some philosophy as well. But uh, there, we're we're seeing these things that you know the the primitivists would call like the diseases of civilization, right? So there there are some people out there like the Ted Kaczynski types who believe that. Because we're not, uh, because you and I can, you know, I'm in Pittsburgh, you're in Dallas or wherever you are, and we can talk over Skype like this right now, and we're not out like foraging for berries, that that means like somehow we're worse off, right? And I think that those people are wrong. But I do think that one of the things that we do, that we, that they have been correct in identifying is that we have seen uh, an increase in certain things like suicide, right? And we've seen an increase in certain things like depression, and we, we just see, I mean, you just go out and you just look around in in any major American city and like people, people are, they're not pushing themselves in any kind of way and they're unhappy, right? And it's like, if you're not pushing yourself, but you're happy in your uh, lack of pushing yourself, okay, maybe there's a case to be made for that. But people, are, <laughs> they're both unhappy and they are um, unfulfilled in their potential, right? And that's something that, I, I noticed at the higher education level and at the university that I attended and the other universities that I would visit, I noticed that often when I uh, speak to high school students, I notice it when I speak to parents, I notice it when I speak to employers, I notice it when I just like speak to normal people. And that should not be normal. Maybe it is normal, but that should not be normal. And I think that people are not properly equipped with the, with the proper uh, cognitive, philosophical, and psychological tools in order to help them craft meaning and live out that meaning in their lives, right? And I think that starts. I think that starts primarily with crafting meaning in their work. 
I I don't think that's conceptual, too conceptual at all. I I, I think I, I think that that is almost you know way too true. Is that people have a lack of meaning and 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 really um, they're not. What I like to say is they're not intentional about even finding that meaning. Mm-hmm. They're not living very in, very intentional lives. Because it seems now with, and and this may get a little old man yelling at clouds, but it seems as if we're so focused on advancing and innovating and and these new things and process uh, and all these things getting faster um, that we often don't take the time to look at the cost of that and what's happening because of that. And uh, and also people are just falling into this trap of, uh, I guess the traditional term would be the rat race. um, and, And they're trying to achieve something but that something is not happiness or they they're trying to achieve things that they think will bring happiness a certain lifestyle a certain benchmark in their career but then they get there and they find out that it's not what they thought it would be yeah i mean i think there's a there's a complex set of problems that all need to be unbundled and addressed in their in their each each in their own individual way right so i used to be of the perspective that i think that uh, accelerating technological progress is an issue here, but if you actually like really break it down and you try to look at what happened technologically, and I don't know if you're speaking, I don't know what window or time frame that you're speaking over, right? If you're speaking over like 200 years, and yes, we've seen great progress. If you're speaking over 20 years, and I would make the case, no, we've actually, outside of certain areas, progress has actually been really, really slow, right? Mm. Um, now there's a book, there's a book called, uh, future shock by Alvin Toffler, which I think was written in like the sixties or the seventies where he kind of makes the case. He's like, if, if technological innovation progresses, it continues to progress at the rate in which it's progressing, which in the fifties, sixties and seventies was pretty fast. Right. Yeah. Then by, you know, the early two thousands, these are all the big social ills that we're going to see. Uh, I think the, the interesting thing is that we end up seeing a lot of these issues he points out, but at the same time, a lot of that progress actually really did slow down. Like you go back and you look at the sci-fi from the sixties in, you know, people are on Mars colonies in like the year 2005. (laughs) Right. Um, haven't quite got there. Yeah. We're not, not quite there. Right. Um, so I, 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 I'm hesitant to look at the technological, uh, question too, too in depth. I think it's much more, uh, a psychological question, and I think there is a certain technological atomization that happens, right? Uh, and I don't think that that atomization is necessarily like the worst thing because you know you hear people complain about how oh, people are on their phones with, rather than talking to people, and it's like, well, yeah, but like where you and I are able to talk to each other without me having to fly to Dallas, right? Like, right. That's that's a pretty good thing, and there's all these people who are going to be able to listen to this conversation without having to like come and sit in a room and watch you interview me, right? Or be on like the radio wavelength within a certain area, so. The technological stuff, I think, is is a an interesting question. I think it's much more uh, a, a conditioning, and again, that's a word I, I want to use carefully because it starts to sound like tinfoil hat conspiratorial, uh, but a conditioning that happens through certain systems and institutions in which people grow up, the largest of which, which consumes like 12 years of people's lives and people barely even like turn an eye to it is schooling, right? We're never taught in school. Children are never taught how to set goals. They're never taught how to find meaning. They're never taught how to understand certain, what, what makes work meaningful work and what makes life meaningful. They're given goals. Their goals are get good grades, right? They are given their spoon fed goals. 
But then they get out of school and they're, you know, 18, 22, 24, 26 years old. And the, the structure which has been provided for them for the last 20 years is suddenly gone. And they have no psychological, cognitive, physical, or mental tools in order to create structure for themselves, right? Like, why else do people experience quarter-life crises? It's because they are, they are conditioned – uh, particularly good students, like what is a good student? A good student is someone who knows how to navigate the system that is the school system or that is student dumb. And then they get out into the rest of the world and it's like, oh, it turns out the rest of the world isn't just like a school. This is problematic. And the, and the bottom falls out for them. That I think, I, like I said, I think there's a lot of issues here, um, but that is like one of the largest ones. And that's, that's the big thing that's making me like, eh, Maybe we need to teach people a lot of these skills outside of the school system. Where would someone get started? I mean, let's imagine that whether someone's listening who is in high school or, or the more likely scenario that someone is listening is in college, whether they're early in their college career or uh, perhaps later in it or, or having gone to college, but in that age range, um, where does someone get started in in what you talk about of of kind of rethinking how we educate ourselves and how we build our careers. Yeah, and I, I, a lot of questions and discussions around this come back to, you know, like, should you read something or should you do something? I think you should do both. I think it's a false dichotomy to say, and I'm not, I realize this is not what you're saying, but I, I've heard a lot of people say it's like, don't, don't sit around and read, go work. And it's like, eh, no, like, you also need to read, right? You need to do a combination of both. Um, I, I I will meet people who they're like really well read in a lot of this stuff, but then they don't actually go out and they apply it. They don't actually go out and like start building their sense of self-efficacy. So I think it's really easy to get caught up reading about personal development, for lack of a better word, or professional development, and never then go apply it. Um, the thing I would recommend that anybody do is start seriously thinking about like what is it that you want, right? And I, and I don't mean that in the sense is like you want good grades from your classes. Like, okay, why do you want good grades from your classes? Well, so I can get a good GPA. Well, why do you want a good GPA, right? Like start investigating what are the values that motivate you towards and away from things, right? And I, I'm working on a, a number of documents and resources to help people do this that are that are like guided worksheets for lack of a better word, Um and I think that, that that sense of introspection is important. At the same time, I also think you should go out and you should build what I call self-efficacy, right? And I think a lot of my investigation into these things started with my interest in why I felt like so many people had low self-esteem. Uh, and I think that a, a, an important component of self-esteem is the ability to see yourself as being competent of setting goals and building paths towards those goals and potentially accomplishing those goals in the world, right? And that's self-efficacy, the ability to like see yourself as an effective person. And the way you do that is you like you start accomplishing things, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan, especially for young men, I'm a big fan of uh, strength training for this reason. Like, Go out like you don't have to become a meathead. In fact, I, I think like you shouldn't become a meathead, but like go out and like start getting in better shape. Right. And I think that's a fantastic way of starting to build self-efficacy, especially again for young men, because, you know, there's there's a number of biological traits that are in their favor, especially at that age. Then you go out there and you see like, oh, if I apply myself, if I set a goal 
if I do the research on how I should achieve that goal and then I apply myself properly and I end up developing the conscientiousness to apply myself properly, i.e. going to the gym two days a week, one day a week, three days a week, whatever, I'll actually see progress. That's interesting. That's really important for people to see, right? So it's a combination of figure it out, figure out what you want, right? And there are a number of ways you can do that. Uh, I think that reading is important for that. Like reading gives you a, a an opportunity to like reflect on these things. Uh, but then actually go out and start developing your sense of self-efficacy. Go get a job if you don't have a job. Um, you know, go set ambitious goals and try to get like really ambitious jobs that are hard to get. Uh, start writing. Writing is another one of those things that, you know, if, if you've got an aversion to strength training or you want something in addition to strength training, writing. If you write often and you continue to write, you will see your writing get better and you will see writing become easier for you. Very good exercise in self-efficacy. And would you agree that the other big thing about this is inviting the feedback uh, whenever you're doing these things to like for writing what I think of at outset, we have a group of writers and our our main focus is we want to get you some very constructive feedback because that's how you actually build that muscle uh, is, is to make sure that you're, you're even doing it correctly in the first place with exercise. It's like, if you don't have the correct form, if you don't have someone walking you through that, you you could end up um, not being as effective as you could be. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that, and I would throw in the, the gigantic asterisk that that is not a case for, like, going and taking most university writing courses, right? Yes. Like, if you, <laughs> if oh, you yeah. find, <laughs> if you take, like, if, if, if I were hiring for a writing role, a content role, right, uh, and I, I do get to see a lot of content written by different people, um, so I, I would much rather take someone who's, like, 18 years old or who has never been to college or has never taken a college writing class at least than someone who is, like, a creative writing major. At like, like the, the number one way for me to take someone's writing not seriously is to see that they're an MFA in, in creative writing. I, I, I just keep flashing. Whenever someone mentions about writing in college, I keep flashing back to, like, a sophomore-level uh, English class I took and we had to have a whole lesson on how to use commas. It was just, yeah. it was a great moment. And I was like, this is the type of people who are able to get this far. It's incredible. <laughs> um, but no, so I agree with you there. Um, what would you say is the most rewarding part of what you do? Um, that's a really good question. So, what I do falls into like a couple of different buckets, right? Like I advise some companies, I introduce people to each other quite often. Like one of my few superpowers is that I, I could, with enough reason, enough time, I could meet anybody pretty quickly. Um, but I would say, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to, and I hate this word, I don't like the word mentor. I think that if you ever run into someone who's like trying to convince you to like let them mentor you, you should run from them. However, I do also think it's important for people to have mentors. Uh, I've had the opportunity inadvertently to mentor a number of, you know, primarily young men, uh, but young people. And it's, it's very, very rewarding to see them, you know, make personal revelations on their own right like realize like oh maybe this isn't the way i should be doing this thing i should actually do it this way right like that's that's really really great to see uh and like actually see them achieve certain things uh and the other is you know occasionally so i write often uh i I write at my website zackslavak.com and i have an email list that i will also send like original writings to and you know sometimes people just shoot me an email and they say like hey zach i really enjoyed this email you, you you spent you sent this day 
I took some of the ideas and some of the tools and some of the things that you talked about and I applied them in my life in this way and I was able to, you know, like get this job or I was able to like negotiate this raise or I'm like, maybe I'm, I'm gaining, you know, maybe I was underweight and I'm gaining weight and like seeing stuff like that's really, really rewarding. Very cool. Um, I want to go into some final, I, I usually call these rapid fire questions, but that okay. just means that I have to ask them quickly because I have a tendency to go on. Uh, so the first question is, uh, what is one book that has influenced you the most? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a fairly voracious reader. So this is actually like a fairly difficult question for me, but, uh, one of the books that I, I really, really enjoy that I will gift to people quite often is the fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Uh, I think it's one of the best explorations of efficacy, uh, explorations of like the struggle for meaning and what happens to someone when you don't investigate what your meaning is or what the values driving you are, you end up becoming a Peter Keating who is, you know, I don't really want to call him a villain in the book. He's a pitiful character, uh, but he's, he's not who you want to be right. Even though by many, uh, objective, (laughs) Ayn Rand people will get that joke, uh, by many objective standards, he's, uh, you know, successful, uh, but he's like a miserable human being and really quite pitiful. So that's one of the books you said you also give away to people a lot. Yeah, I think that that's a really good one. Um, what are some if you're others? Not, um, you know, I, I was really resistant to his stuff for a long time because I thought he was like ridiculously self-helpy and like not like I don't need that kind of stuff. Right. It, but I actually really like a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. Um, his book, Awaken the Giant Within, is pretty good. His, his book, Unlimited Power, is also good, but it's um, really an introduction to an old, you know, self-help niche called neuro-linguistic programming. Um, so Awaken the Giant Within is, is pretty good. Uh, I, I do really, really like that one. I also really like The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's, it's this book about, it's a very short book. You could read it in a day. It's about these people who... Uh, they have this opportunity. They they get on this bus and go from this dreary, like infinite city, which is supposed to be hell, and they go to this plain. And you know, a, a plain isn't like where there's grass and you know you can walk on. Not plain isn't like airplane. And uh, they have the opportunity essentially to go to heaven. And most of them like convince themselves that they don't want to. They they complain about things like. Oh, you know, the, the grass hurts my feet. Oh, the sun hurts my eyes. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to do this. And most of them get on the bus and they go back to hell. And I think that that is, um, there's obviously like theological ramifications from that for anyone who's interested in that. Uh, but I think that that's also like really symbolic of, you, you know, you and I were talking about several minutes ago. A lot of people seem like they've just kind of given up, right? Yeah. And I think I think that that's a very conscious decision on people's part. I don't think that that's something that people just kind of like slip, in, slip into. It's like you have the opportunity, you have the ability to improve your life. Like you might not have the ability to go from like, you know, at some terribly impoverished situation to being like a billionaire. Like if we're realistic, you might not have that opportunity, but you definitely have the opportunity to improve your life. And a lot of people choose not to. And that's still a choice. I was about to say that book just sounds like beautiful symbolism for uh, a lot of people. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic little book. Like I said, you can read it in a day. That's a good one to give to people as well. Awesome. What is one message that you'd most like to get out to the world? Imagine you have a Super Bowl ad or, or, or some sort of huge billboard that millions of people go by. What's that message? Do harder stuff. I think you, you had a blog about that recently, didn't you? About doing hard yeah. stuff first. 
Yeah, this was uh, one I, I posted primarily on Medium. I just reposted it on my, my website, um, zackslaback.com. But uh, I, I write often at The Mission on Medium. Uh, it's the largest active uh, publication on Medium. I'm also one of the editors there. Uh, and it's, it, it's, again, this case for self-efficacy, right? Like you need to do increasingly difficult things in order to become a more effective person. And the process of becoming a more effective person, this is something we didn't really get to touch on quite that much but i'd like to touch on it quickly is um i think this is one of the things that that school either sometimes overtly teaches us but certainly inadvertently teaches people is that you will be happy once you've achieved things right you'll be happy once you get that prestigious job you'll be happy once you get those grades you'll be happy once you get into that university right and then this this continues in the symbolic rat race that everyone experiences right it's like i'll be happy once i can keep up with the joneses right and psychologically that's just not true people experience what's called a hedonic treadmill right it's like you get nicer and nicer things and you still want nicer and nicer things there will always be somebody more significant than you there will always be somebody richer than you there will always be somebody better looking than you right that's something that you know i say objectively but it's very very difficult for people to um internalize the thing that people are quite good at deriving the thing from which people are quite good at deriving fulfillment is progress towards the achievement of meaningful goals right so going back to what we were saying earlier like i said go practice self-efficacy but also like figure out what motivates you and set some goals it's not necessarily the achievement of those goals that will make you happy it's seeing progress on those goals right and i i think that like uh, choosing increasingly more difficult things and doing those things helps you see that kind of progress and i think that's one thing from which people can derive fulfillment well, let's go there for a second. Um, how does someone know or how does someone develop these meaningful goals? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, that, that's one that I, I get quite often via email or via like Facebook Messenger where people will tell me they're like, you know, I, I went to college, I got this job, I've got some debt now and, you know, it's a good paying job and I'm pretty unfulfilled. Like, eh, eh. Um, and, uh, you know, there there's a ton of, like, goal-setting workshops out there. And uh, a lot of them I don't particularly like because even if they do help you set some kind of goal to have, they don't really help you set either meaningful goals, which that's – meaningful is an important word there, or they don't help you to set uh, goals that you have a, a clear path to achieve those goals. So I think th- – in order to answer both of those questions, right? Like what is a meaningful goal and what is a goal that's like one I can actually try to make progress towards? Uh, you have to do two things. One, you have to have like a, some kind of idea of like the values that motivate you. Right. Uh, and I think that this is coming back to those, that question of like constantly asking why, like there are goals that you have today. There are things you want, right? Like no matter who I talk to, those people will have things that they want. And if you ask them why they want those things, if they bear with you and don't punch you in the face, then they should probably be able to give you some kind of idea of like why they want those things, right? It's either that it's going to give them some kind of significance or it's going to help them feel productive or things like that, right? Um, So like, you know, libertarian and conservative types tend to derive some kind of value and meaning from being productive, right? So uh, if you set goals that help you increase your general level of productiveness and experience a sense of productiveness, those people will tend to be motivated towards those kinds of goals, right? And I, I just speak about those people because that's that's how I am. Uh, that's how a lot of the people I know are. Uh, so 
reflect on why you want things quite often. Um, and then I, I, the thing I find really, really useful to ask is some is a, a psychological tool taken from um, Thomas Aquinas's uh, questions on like, what is God, right? Like this is a, a, a classic question in philosophy is like, you know, what is God? What makes things godly? Like, does God like certain things? Like you've got all these questions that derive from that question, right? And uh, Thomas Aquinas comes up with this idea. I think I actually first read about it in uh, Nassim Taleb's book, uh, Anti-Fragile, but it's, it's this idea called via negativa. So instead of asking like, what is God? Ask, what is God not, right? And then through what's essentially a process of elimination, you'll get a fairly good silhouette of the concept of God. And I think the same thing works for people's goals. Like instead of asking, you know, what is it that you want? Ask it, what is it that you don't want, right? And I think there's numerous reasons why that works well. Uh, one of those is that we, psychologically, most people are more motivated by avoiding pain than they are for experiencing pleasure. So if you say like, I really don't want to live a life like this, okay, then that should motivate you to do things that help you not do a life like that. But if you get like really, really granular with that question of like, what is it that you do not want? You start to get a, a buffet of options, right? that a limited buffet of options that are like the things that you should do then. And you should start making progress on those things. And as you make progress on those things, you can come back and re-examine that question of whether or not, A, it's helping you achieve your values, uh, getting closer to living out your values, and B, uh, if it's helping you move away from those things that you don't want, right? And if the answer is yes, then good. Then we can usually derive a fairly specific and granular set of goals that you can set. And then from those goals, and then this answers the second half of that question, is like, how can we actually make these goals actionable? You can then use a process that, um, you know, I, I, I like to, one of the things I really liked about when I was doing business development at Praxis, and this sounds like a tangent, but it's not, uh, is I had the opportunity to speak with a lot of really successful people, right? Like they were often multiple time founders. I, I got to speak to a lot of investors. I, I ended up I, in, indirectly through that, I ended up having opportunities to like interview with some of my heroes, right? And that was very, very cool. And one of the things that I noticed a lot of these people did was they followed a process called reverse induction. What they did was they said like, this is the thing I want to achieve. It's big, it's far off in the distance, it's ambitious let me find other people who have done that. So they, they chose role models. They did something that, you know, in certain spaces people will call modeling and ask, what did those people do that got them there? Right? So you ask, okay, what is it that I need to do in order to achieve my goal? What is the thing that comes right before achieving the goal that I have to do? Okay. Now what's the thing I have to do right before that in order to achieve that milestone? Right? And you told, and you continue to work backwards until you eventually get to a place where there is one thing that you can do right now that will help you towards the achievement of that goal. And I, I call this, I've got an article on this actually. Um, I call this ambition mapping. If you just Google ambition mapping, uh, my article comes up. Uh, I, I think it's it's a good goal is one that you can draw an ambition map around. It's like reverse engineering the process that someone else used to to achieve that similar thing. Absolutely. So yeah. I had an interview um, on, uh, I, I ran a podcast for a while. And on that podcast, I had an interview with a, a philosopher named Jason Brennan. And, uh, you know, Jason's got a great story. He, you know, grew up uh, relatively, I believe, relatively impoverished in like New England. He like worked in a factory when he was like in high school. 
and he wanted to become a professional philosopher. And like, that's a really hard job to get, right? Like, it's not like there's a philosophy factory that people can go to and get a job there. Uh, so what he did was he looked at someone who got a prestigious uh, job at a like a, 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 a first tier research university and he asked what are the things this person had to do in order to do that and he decided I will do all of those things and then some and that should help me achieve that goal and he was right that's awesome that's like I, I think well, what you just talked about all that I, I need to take that out and make that its own little episode because uh, that's <laughs> powerful stuff I appreciate that Absolutely. Um, a lot of the other questions that we are, I mean, we've already talked about kind of the future issues that are coming up. Um, I, I guess one thing that that I'll ask about that in regards to what you do in education, um, do you have a, a generally positive outlook about how you see things happening in the next 10 to 30 years with education? Or do you think that it's going to be an era where um, there are a lot of challenges and we, we're, we're going to have to work through that? No, uh, on the general like optimism pessimism question, I I tend to oscillate back and forth like the general direction of the world. Uh, but on education, I'm actually very very optimistic about it. Um, I and that's at every level of the game, whether that's K through 12 or that's higher education. And I think that's because, uh, so I I was not homeschooled, right? And I don't have children yet. And uh, I had a lot of the really unfair notions and biases in my mind that most people have about homeschoolers until I actually started interacting with a lot of homeschoolers. But I think that homeschoolers are the heroes of K through 12 education. They are the people who are like slowly chipping away at that tower and that tower is about ready to collapse. And what we've actually seen is in like the last 10 years or so, uh, I've got an article on this uh, as well. I think this is on fee.org where there's been this huge spike in homeschooling uh, year over year. And I think in, I don't think why this is, I know why this is. This is because the costs of doing something like homeschooling have come down dramatically. Right. And I don't mean like the actual, like you have to pay a bill to do it. I mean like, the social costs and the technological costs, because most people would say like, oh, you know, I don't know how to teach my kids. Well, you don't have to teach them. Do you have an internet connection, right? <laughs> if you've got an internet connection and a computer, they have opportunities to learn uh, that, you know, 20, 30 years ago they did not have. So we're, we're seeing like all these little things chipping away at the tower. And I, I think that homeschooling is a very, very good example of that at the K through 12 level. Um, we're, we're also seeing, you know, a lot of progress, uh, in different forms of education coming out. More and more people are willing to try new, crazy, unique things. Like I, I know I've seen that like Elon Musk is a, an advocate of what's essentially unschooling, uh, which I think is, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have people who can command that kind of respect advocating for things like that. Uh, at the higher education level, like I said, why do people go to college, right? I have given a lot of talks on different college campuses, and I like to ask this question when I'm giving the talk. And uh, the way I ask the question is, how many of you would be here today if uh, you would learn the things you're learning, you would do the things that you're doing, uh, and, but at the end of the day, you would not get the degree? You'd, you'd spend the time you're spending, and you'd also spend the money you're spending, but you'd, also, you'd, you'd learn things, right? Uh, out of a room of a hundred people, I might get one person raise their hand, right? And then I usually ask that person, what do you want to do? And it's almost always, I want to be a professor. Great. Go become a professor. These things are built for you. But most people, the reason why they're there is to get a job. And if the employment 
landscape starts to shift, which it has, and you and I talked about that earlier, just like little things like, uh, you know, degree or equivalent work experience is a really good example of that. As the employment landscape starts to shift, you're going to see more and more options become available to people uh, at the at the uh, higher education level. So I'm pretty optimistic about education. It's, it's one of these things where uh, I think it's going to become much less monolithic. And so long as people can fight this myth that school and education are the same thing, then I, I think you, you will truly see like a thousand flowers blooming in this area. Yeah, it sounds like a, like a really interesting area to be watching. Um, well, cool. One of the last things I want to do, I know we're running out. I could probably speak to you for two or three more hours because there's <laughs> some really great stuff here. But uh, to, to respect your time here, uh, I, I want to finish with what is one request or one ask that you would have for someone listening that they can do or, or should do um, after this episode is done? Um, like, a, like an ask for themselves? Something that, that you would request them to do uh, just as an action step after this episode. Well, two things. One would be uh, go to my website and sign up for my email list because that's how I stay in touch with people. And that's how like some of the a lot of the things you and I have talked about here, I can actually send directly to people. Uh, the other thing would be, and if you sign up for the email list, you'll get exhortations to do this and resources to do this as well, is like what we were talking about earlier. Figure out what it is you want and why you want it, right? Do that. And I, I think... Man, I think almost all the social ills we see today that people talk about, whether it's political social ills or it's like the opioid crisis or it's all, or, you know, suicide and depression, come back to that question. People don't know how to do that and they're not taught how to do that. So please do that. Teach your friends how to do that. Teach your families, your children. Yeah. And, and I'll put links to your website and all that in the show notes. Um, people want to find you on social media. Where could they do that or how could they do uh, that? On Twitter, I am at Z Slayback, S-L-A-Y-B-A-C-K. Uh, on Medium, if you're on Medium, I am also that. Uh, and then on Facebook, I'm just Zach, Z-A-K, Slayback, S-L-A-Y-B-A-C-K. Awesome, Zach. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. This was fantastic. Thank you one more time to Zach for coming on the show. And thanks to you for listening to the show, sticking with us every week. Um, I really enjoy doing it. I hope you enjoy listening. You can connect with me on social media at Stephen underscore Perkins on Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins. You can connect with the Outset Network at Outset Network on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out all of the other podcasts that we have, outsetmagazine.com slash, you guessed it, podcast. Uh, until next week, thanks. Take care. God bless. Mm-hmm.